Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Fallaton. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ibethel.org. Last week, I started this series called God, Government, and Prosperity. I was sharing with the first service that I, I've never received more comments in my entire life preaching a message, and I didn't have one single negative comment. Even on Facebook, which is some kind of a miracle. <laughs> I don't know if God kept the demons away from Facebook for a week or what happened, but I was like, yeah, yeah everybody's on Facebook knows what I mean, right? You can say Jesus is good, and people have a problem with that, you know, mostly Christians. So, uh, so I'll do some repeat. I didn't get to do much of the new part of my message in first service, so I'm hoping to maybe change it up a little bit. So I want to talk about God in government. And we have, Bethel Church has been working uh, in government for, for a while, but specifically we've been, I think, around five years in D.C. That, we've been, uh, that I've been going with teams and working with political people in government and of course, we, we don't tell most of those testimonies, and when we do, we kind of disguise where we are and what's happening for obvious reasons. Um, you know, confidentiality is king in when you're working with political people. So we don't get to tell. A, a small group of people get to hear some of the testimonies that we see happening behind the scenes. But let me just say this. God's at work in our government and in the governments of the world. And I want to tell you, there's obviously there's a lot of bad news, but there's a lot more good news um, in government. And God is really the X factor. He really is working in the midst of people. And I've seen more Daniels and Josephs in the last three years in government working with world leaders than I've ever heard of even in the Bible. So that's the good news. And we get to exchange stories all the time because we meet Josephs and Daniels and Esthers, and we come back and we're like, do you know this guy is a friend of the president or a friend of that prime minister or a friend of that, that dictator? And it's like we actually get to hear of people influencing world leaders and actually changing their opinions about things, everything from Israel to the kingdom. So it's just been really beautiful. So I, I'm going to try to give a 10-minute overview of last week's message, and that'll give me about uh, about 16 minutes to do the rest of this, or 26 minutes to do the rest of this. So we'll see how we do. Um, in Matthew 28, Jesus um, was, he, he obviously just rose from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples, and he makes this statement. We commonly use this around here, so this will not be new. He said, um, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In heaven and on earth. Therefore, speaking to his disciples, make disciples of all nations teaching them everything I taught you. And so we have this commission, what sometimes we call the Great Commission, to make disciples not just in nations, but of nations. Now, this concept, this idea of making disciples of nations or being a father to nations, a mother to nations, this is, this is actually not a new concept to Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't initiate this concept in Matthew 28. Actually, this was a promise made to Abraham. You'll remember the, that God took him out to see the stars. He took him in the morning to see the sand of the sea. And he said, this, your descendants will be the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. And then he said, and you, in fact, let me read you this verse. Uh, this is speaking of Abraham. We're picking up right in the middle of the conversation, the book of Romans chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, if you want to make notes. A father of many nations I have made you. This is God speaking to Abraham. In the presence of him 
whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things which did not exist. In hope against hope, he believed that he might become the father of many nations, and so shall his descendants be. What shall his descendants be? The father of many nations. I'd like to remind you that Abraham was not the father of Israel. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, was the father of Israel. Abraham was the father of many nations. So the promise to Abraham was that he would be a father to many nations, and so will his descendants be. Now, how many understand that while Abraham walked the earth, he was the father of no nation? But the promise of Abraham, the father of faith, is that he would be a father to many nations. Now, this is kind of uh, maybe a bad statistic, but how many understand that, that Muslims have become the father of five nations? They are mentoring five nations. Christians, zero. So I'd like to suggest to you that God actually wants us to father nations, to be mothers and fathers to nations. Um, so there's, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of um, verses about fathering nations. And I want you to know that God is very much in government, and God wants his people to be involved in government. Isaiah chapter 9, Paul Manwaring's favorite verses, verse 6 and 7, says that, uh, speaking of Jesus, that, um, in fact, I just skipped my mind, said, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Upon the throne of David, isn't it interesting that Jesus is sitting upon the throne of David? Jesus is not sitting on his throne, he's sitting on David's throne, which means God is not embarrassed of humanity. Upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and hold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the house of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. In other words, 2,500 years ago, Isaiah said that God's government is not perpetuating, how many know it's growing exponentially? And you, when, how many know that the kingdom Jesus said the greatest, uh, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom was greater than John. How many know that John wasn't in the kingdom? Because you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Are you with me? And the kingdom means the king's dominion. So how many understand that when you receive Jesus, as each one of you came in, the kingdom of God is exponentially growing because you're some of the kings he's king over because he's king of kings. Good word, Chris. We love that. No, that's all right. Too late. I don't really have time to wait for you today. A little bit about government. A great, uh, a great word picture in, as far as the establishment of government, because most people, you know, they're like, I'm trying to raise children. You know, I don't really have time for government. I don't, I'm not interested. And I'm like, yeah, you're really interested. You just don't know you're interested because you happen to live in a country that has good government. <laughs> Relatively good government. And, you know, when they built Shasta College, they didn't, uh, when they finished Shasta College, finished building the building of Shasta College, they put no sidewalks in. They planted grass all the way around the college, the university, and then they waited for a year to see where the faculty and students wore out the lawn, and where they wore out the lawn, they poured, they poured sidewalks. It's a beautiful picture of government, because government is supposed to be a sidewalk, if you will. It's supposed to be a walkway. It's supposed to be a vehicle, a structure that empowers your destiny. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. You, you with me? In other words, government should, should um, 
government should cover your weaknesses and empower your strengths and release you to your destiny. There's a really, uh, there's a really great experiment. It's kind of a great social experiment um, in um, Korea. How many of you understand that Korea was once one country? South and North Korea were one country. After the Second World War, the, the, they divided Korea into two countries, North Korea and South Korea, put about a six-inch wall about approximately um, right through the middle of Korea, and North Korea became communist with Russia influencing it. South Korea became democracy, a democracy with the Western um, countries, uh, including America, influencing it. And then, so you take the same people, right, the same ethnic group, you put them on the same continent, give them the same natural resources, give them the same language, same intellectual properties, right? You put a wall in between them. You put, you put communism on one side, you put democracy on the other side, you wait 50 years to see what happens. And we got one country that literally cannot even feed its own people, North Korea. And you got South Korea that literally is flourishing and prospering. What's the difference? Well, obviously, there are lots of differences, but those differences are empowered through government. When you say, when some of us say, well, I don't really care about government, that's because you live on the South Korea side. Because if you lived on the North Korea side, you would care very much about government because you're in a government, however much you like it or not, the fact that you're sitting here today listening to a free message, as, as uh, Eric said, the fact that you get to read a Bible and not sneak around and that we are streaming this to thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people, all of that's happened because you live on the South Korea side. Are you with me? So you care very much about government. And um, so I... I, I want to say that we have a responsibility about government. You know, it's interesting to me, ladies, you couldn't vote in America if you're an American until 1920. It took you 47 years of struggle to actually even get a chance to vote. But you struggled for it because you knew it was important. I wonder how many people, how many ladies actually vote now. I hope you all do, but you see my point. It's like we struggle for something. We know it's important. We get the, you know, we finally get the right to do it. And 47 years later, I mean, so, you know, what has it been? 70 years later, 80 years later, we're like, you know, I'm not, I don't care about government. Well, you don't care about government because you won the right to put sidewalks, to build sidewalks to your destiny. And so government is very important. I want to, um, would you turn to Romans 13? One of the major points that I was trying to make last week, which I got the most input about, the most comments about, was Romans 13. I want to just read it to you. How many of you think that you should not fear men? Raise your hand. You should not be afraid of men. And fear is not from God. Okay. Good. It's a trick question. <laughs> Romans 13. Every person, verse 1, sorry. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, very interesting, little background, which makes this, this, this Roman passage really powerful, is that this was written to the Romans in the days of Nero. So sometimes people read this and they're like, yeah, but they didn't have government. No, no, this is written in the days of Nero. Verse 2, therefore, whoever... Resists authority has, has resisted the ordinances of, ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers is not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, 
and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. <laughs> Start over. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only for, because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of you, because of this, you pay taxes, for rulers are the servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Listen to this, verse 7. Render to all what is due. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom customs due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honors due. Listen, I, I want, here's the main point I want to take out of last week's message. God does not lead the church the same way he leads the world. God put two trees in the garden. It was God's idea to put two trees in the garden. The point has made, been made here over and over and again. God is the God of choice. God gives, us, God, gives you the, God gives you permission to sin. When I say permission, he doesn't want you to sin. Maybe I should say he gives you the authority to sin. In other words, you get to choose Every day, if you eat the, from the tree of life or you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every day. It was God's idea to give you choice. And by the way, sin did not begin with humans. Angels who were in heaven, in the third heaven with God, one third of them chose not to serve God and fell. So how many understand when you get to heaven, you'll still get to make choices because God is the God of choice. Or are you with me? And God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What does that mean? God treats righteous people and wicked people good, even though they don't deserve it. So God, God reigns, God provides services to the righteous the same way he provides them to the unrighteous. God makes the sunshine on the righteous and wicked. What's that mean? It means that God benefits, God actually helps people who don't serve him. That's the nature of the new covenant. But here's the part I want to get across. God also leads the church differently than he leads government. So if you want to be involved in government, you better be ready to switch your ideas around leadership. Because, in, because God says to, to the world, listen, you can do whatever you want, providing it doesn't hurt another person. This is, a, this, this is the complicated um, mission of government that there will, be, there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. The goal of government, the goal of political government is not evangelism. It's peace. And God brings peace by saying you can do what you want. How many know it's Christian? It was Christians who founded this country, at least Christian principles, who gave Muslims the ability to practice their faith in a Christian world. In other words, God says, you can be free to do whatever you want to do, providing you don't hurt another person. So how many know that God said, thou shalt not kill? And then he sent them into uh, war and said, you know, take out all the evil people in the, in the Old Testament. And what I'm getting at is this, is that God said, God creates laws that protect people from other people. <laughs> but it's not the nature of God to keep somebody, like let's say two consenting adults, it's not government's, government doesn't have, the, doesn't have permission to tell two consenting adults what to do in their bedroom, providing they're consenting between each other. Are you with me? But if you want to, if you want to violate a child, how many know government has the, 
has the responsibility and the right to do something about that. Are you with me? And, the, and government bears a sword. In other words, we say, oh, you know, fear isn't from God. It's not from God unless they're in government. <laughs> and then God says, listen, if you're evil and you want to hurt somebody else, you should be afraid of how I've empowered government because I've empowered government with a sword and I intend them to bring the wrath of God on anybody who wants to hurt somebody. Now, most of you don't like that theology, but you definitely love it in action. So when you call the police on your neighbor who is threatening you, he, you hope he comes with a gun and not a Bible. Right? You want your crazy neighbor to be afraid to do something evil to you. No, I'm just saying, do you not? If your neighbor is, is acting crazy, you want him to be afraid to go to prison. You want him to be afraid to be locked up. You want him to be afraid of the police department. In other words, God has ingrained it in government and he's commissioned government to use the sword, the wrath of the sword on anyone who wants to do evil to someone else. He's done that because he's given people permission to have free will. And in free will, God goes, well, I'll let you be free to do whatever you want. And some people who take advantage of that will say, well, I like to beat up people. And God goes, well, you can't use your freedom against somebody else. And if you do, then I've, I've created wrath. And how many understand that Jesus doesn't leave the church like he leads the world? As a matter of fact, in Revelation 13, it's God, it says that, the, that Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron. How many know that's a new covenant way Jesus leads? Why? Because in the church, he leads through love and through empowering people. And how many know there's no fear in love and perfect love casts out fear? That's all written to the church. But how many know in government, God chooses wrath against people who have free will, who want to do evil to other people? This is really important. And why is it important? Because God's called us to make disciples of nations. And it's important that we realize that when we become leaders in government, our job is not to Christianize people. I said, it's, the, not, the, it's not the government's job to Christianize people. Constantine tried that and it was a miserable failure. Our job is to kingdomize and kingdom choices, kingdom lets people make choices. Are you with me? So we see people like ISIS comes and kills a bunch of people and people are like, we need to love our enemies. We need to love our enemies personally. You don't have a right to get a gun and go after ISIS. But government not only has the right, but the responsibility. Are you with me? They don't just have the right, they have the responsibility. I can't you know, you know, grab a gun and you know, get, drive, get a, buy a black, you know, buy a car and paint it black and, and white and put a cherry on top and say, I hate crime, I'm gonna be a crime fighter. No, no, personally, you're to love your neighbor. But government is responsible to protect your neighbor with force, the sword of wrath, if necessary. It's really important that we get this because we're moving into government. And if we try to influence government the way we influence the government of the church, we're going to be outside looking in. Okay, how are we doing for time? Okay. Ten things to remember about God's way of governing. 
Number one, God's in charge, but he's not in control. Bill taught us that a few years ago. God's in charge, but he's not in control. Well, how could that be? Well, if God was in control, would there be any crime? No, but there also would be no free will. Number two, free will is the nature of God's government. Number three, taking away people's ability to do evil isn't the kingdom. (laughs) Number four, God's government protects freedom of choice. Number five, God's government doesn't allow one person to harm another. Number six, God protects the right of a person to sin. Number eight, laws are the practical application of government's responsibility to protect its people from harm and keep the peace. Number eight, righteousness always begins from the inside out. Number nine, God leads his church differently than he leads the world. And number 10, God uses force on people who want to harm others. Thank you, Chris, for that encouraging message. Okay, so let's um, talk a little bit about um, how God, how do we lead? So if you turn to Luke 13, there's a great message there. Actually, I think Bill taught us in the 80s. How does the kingdom actually influence the world? Like, how do we bring the kingdom's influence on this alien planet? And I'd like to just suggest a couple of things that have been tried and tested in the, in the centuries past. In Luke chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus is speaking. He says, what is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. I just, I, I want to encourage you, it doesn't take a lot of Jesus to change a nation. It just takes a little seed. You can plant a little seed. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we, we were raised in democracy, so it feels like, like, there's so many that want evil. It's like, yeah, but it just takes one, it takes one little seed. It takes one little mustard seed to overcome an entire garden. It takes just a couple of measures, peck measures of leaven to cause everything to rise. And what I'm getting at is that, is that when you look out and you go, there's so much going wrong. Oh, the world's going to end. It's coming to an end. Oh, Jesus, hurry back. Well, Jesus, hurry back would be great, except for billions of people would, be, would end up in hell if he came right now. So we should probably think of them and not us. And we, we probably ought to work to see, be leaven in our culture. Uh, Jesus made two statements that I think are profound. He said, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And in Matthew 10, he said, behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Interesting, I was flying home. This is probably mm, a good 10 years ago. I was flying home from, uh, from Europe, some European country, I don't remember which, and I had, fall, I had fallen asleep. You know, that, you know that, that little space, it's usually about three minutes before you fall asleep? You're kinda, I call it the twilight zone. <laughs> How many of you get a lot of stuff in the twilight zone? I, I get so much stuff, it's, like, it's, it's kind of like where your will is sleeping, but your soul's still awake. It's that little spot. Well, I have this little, I was, I was really, really, really tired. I, I had suffered badly from jet lag when I was in Europe. And so I, just, I was just having an extraordinary um, 
trouble with, with, uh, with sleeping. And so I, I laid down, and right, as I, right before I fell asleep, I heard this voice in my spirit really loudly. He said, be as, uh, be as uh, shrewd, I'm sorry, this, this verse, be as, um, be as shrewd as serpents and as wise as doves. Be as shrewd, I'm sorry, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. I'm sorry. Be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So I'm laying there. Be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And this is what he said to me. You know lots about doves, but you don't know a thing about serpents. And he said, I'm going to teach you about serpents so you can emulate their ways and overcome their power. I'm going to teach you about serpents so you can emulate their ways and overcome their power. I'm going to talk a little bit about this hiding the kingdom idea. Like, how does the kingdom come? Well, one way the kingdom comes is covertly. Like, God, I'm saying, this is not the only way. I'm saying God hides his people. He needs them into the dough of society. And it doesn't take a lot of the kingdom to cause all the dough to rise. And we have such a great example in the book of Daniel. And I'm going to just tell you uh, most of these stories but Daniel, his family has been taken captive. They've, Nebuchadnezzar has come in and destroyed Israel, tore down the temple, killed many Israelites, and carried away four, at least four youth, many more, but four youth, in, they were POWs in Nebuchadnezzar's land. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, it, and the king orders the, these four boys to learn the literature, the history, and the language of Babylon. Did you hear that? Listen, I don't have time to spend too much time on it, but how many know that if you want to influence culture, you need to understand the history? You need to understand their literature, and you need to speak the language of Babylon. So Daniel and four boys and three boys learn this stuff, and the king wants them to eat the, you know, you know the story, he wants them to eat the king's food, drink the king's wine, and Daniel says, listen, listen, we won't drink that wine and we won't eat that food. We want vegetables only. Now, that's the old covenant, because the new covenant says that he who eats vegetables only is weak in faith. So, but in the old covenant, vegetables were strong, but in the new covenant, meat is better. just want to make that clear that I'm a New Testament guy. And so... You remember the story that Daniel and the boys get an opportunity to eat vegetables only and not drink the king's wine. And the, um, and the commentary on them after, I think it was like uh, two weeks of that or something, short amount of time, is that they were fatter on vegetables than on the king's food. Now, fat was considered a blessing in the Bible. Now, I think that's a new covenant principle also. You skinny people, I just feel so sorry for you. <laughs> so Daniel doesn't eat the king's food. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't eat the king's food, and they still look great. So Daniel is, becomes the king's personal servant. Now, I don't have really time to go through the whole story of Daniel, and someday I'd like to just teach just on the book of Daniel. But the interesting thing to me is this, and here's what I want to bring up. Daniel refuses the king's food and the king's wine. But Daniel becomes the king's personal psychic. 
He's literally a magician and a sorcerer considered, no, I'm not saying he is. I'm saying he's considered a magician and a sorcerer and he becomes the chief of the sorcerers. And his name is changed to Belshazzar because it's the name of the king's god and the king has many gods. Are you following me? So I want to just read this passage. It's actually, this part of this book of Daniel is actually, um, is actually in, out of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's journals. Verse uh, eight, but finally Daniel came in before me. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking in first person, whose name is Belshazzar according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. And I related the dream to him saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, what, um, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I've seen along with this interpretation. Now, the reason I bring up this passage is because, think through this for a minute. If Daniel is trying to not compromise, but he's customizing, but not compromising. If you and I looked at that, would we think, well, I'll eat the king's, I would think, I'll eat the king's food, but you're not calling me by that. And I'm not going to be in charge of your sorcerers. But Daniel's, Daniel, I'm saying, listen, I'm, what I'm getting at is this. When God calls you to something, he will always call you to purity. But purity on the inside doesn't look the same as purity on the outside. And I'm saying, be careful when you judge people who are working in government because you don't really know what you're talking about. And so, so this, this, is, this is the tragedy of people that we've sent into government. We think, oh, they've compromised their life. Look who they're meeting with. Look who they're talking to. Look at who they're friends with. And we don't realize that they're being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We don't realize that God said, don't eat the food, but God lets them be called by a name. And God goes, you will always have to sacrifice something to be, you'll always have to sacrifice something for your purity, but what they have to sacrifice may not be what you have to sacrifice. And what I'm getting at is this, if we're going to influence government, we're going to have to give each other grace and, and trust each other's relationship with God because you may be able to eat the meat and eat and drink the wine, but you may not be able to call, be called by a sorcerer's name. On the other hand, somebody else may be called by a sorcerer's name, may be not able to eat the meat. Are you with me? And I'm saying, <laughs> and having, having worked with government the last five years in D.C. a lot in D.C. And, and around the world, I've gotten to know people on both sides of the aisle. We tend to demonize the people we don't understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it's like, I am a very big opponent of morality. I have started an organization called Moral Revolution because I have a passion for it. So I think I'm probably as passionate about morality than probably anyone is here. Immorality. But I'm passionate for morality. But I'm passionate against immorality. Does that make sense? So I'm passionate against abortion, you know, sexual immorality, all of that. I'm passionate opposed to that. Are you with me? So, but since I've been working in D.C., you know, I have been working on both sides of the aisle. More often on the liberal side. Isn't it interesting that God sends Paul, who is an expert in, in Judaism, to lead the Gentiles. <laughs> and Paul sends Peter who doesn't know a thing about Judaism, he's a fisherman, to lead the Jews. Yeah. I'm astounded by how many people who I disagree with invite me in. I'm astounded. I'm like, I don't know if many of my friends would get who I'm meeting with right now. And here's what part of what I've learned in five years. 
I've never found anybody who's pro-abortion. I didn't say there isn't. Let me finish. I've only found people who don't think the government's job, it's the government's job to tell a woman what to do with her body. Now, I completely agree with that, except for one thing. There's two people involved. So my stance to these folks is, yes, but what if there's two people involved? My point is this. It's easy to demonize people you don't understand. And they're saying, well, I don't believe that God controls people. And I'm saying, I don't believe God controls people either, unless they want to do evil to someone else. And, all, and all, what I'm finding is, we both agree. <laughs> it's the application we disagree on. Okay, well, I probably made some friends that day. <laughs> Daniel has a covert ministry, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. He need, he's needed, needed into the dough of a very, very wicked country. Probably more wicked in the days of Babylon than any nation. Oh, there might be a nation. There's probably a couple. But you get where I'm going. Very wicked. And he's serving the king because he loves them. He loves three of the four kings he worked with. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar prophesies evil about himself, and Daniel has to interpret it, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, oh, I would that this was about your enemies and not about you. <laughs> I mean, one thing I've learned is if you're going to serve political people, you better love them. Yeah. If you don't love them, you can't serve them. Yeah. I mean, love them like you want their best. How does, Neb how does Daniel find a way to serve a king who is literally killing Jews? How does he do that? I don't know, but he loves them. And the outcome is that Nebuchadnezzar meets the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and makes a decree. You know the story. Daniel serves Belshazzar, uh, the king's son. And then he serves Darius. You'll remember Darius threw him in the lion's den, when Daniel was 93. Probably why the lions didn't eat him. They're like, hmm. I said beef jerky. <laughs> Paul's like, human jerky. Nah, mm, not that hungry. And Daniel, when Daniel's in the lion's den, he, the king fasts all night. Did you know that? It says Darius fasted all night. That's the kind of fast I do. I fast all night. <laughs> then I break fast in the morning. He runs, to the, he runs to the lion's den, and he yells from a long distance away, Daniel was the God that you served both day and night, able to save you. And here's what he hears. O king, O you king who just threw me in the lion's den, O king, may you live forever. Say, so you want to change a country, you better fall in love with its leaders. Well, you don't know the evil leaders. Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't know Daniel's evil leaders. Daniel lives to meet Cyrus, who was a Persian king. Think about this. Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied that there'll be a man named Cyrus. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45 that he'll, he's going to give Cyrus hidden treasures in secret places of darkness. It just so happens completely by luck that Daniel lives long enough to outlive three kings and be in the court of the fourth king, Cyrus, in the 70th year that Jeremiah prophesied. And in the 70th year, 
a king named Cyrus will let the people of God go and rebuild their temple. <laughs> Daniel is the student of Jeremiah. He reads Jeremiah. He comes into Cyrus's courts, who he served now for a few years, and he says, look, dude, you're in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Cyrus, who is, as, as far as we know, is not a believer, releases the people as Jeremiah said, to go back and rebuild the temple. But here's what Jeremiah did not say, neither did Isaiah. And Cyrus funded the entire building project, more than a billion dollars from his own personal treasury. Now, that's good news. But the best story is probably this story that I didn't learn until two years ago. Cyrus wrote the Bill of Rights that the United Nations uses as its charter. Who taught Cyrus the Bill of Rights? A guy named Daniel, who lived 70 years in Babylon, loving every king he served, even though they were wicked, helping them expand their kingdom. This is weird to me, knowing that in the end, God would have them. He mentors Cyrus, who today is still making history in that Cyrus created the first human rights document that Daniel taught him. This is the way of the kingdom. See, it just takes a little bit of leaven. People are like, oh, Babylon's going down. Oh my God, the world's going to end. What's happening? Ah, you don't know Daniel. See, you don't know that God always has an X factor. See, I believe, this is what I believe. I believe you can only screw up your life a certain amount. Because God says all things work together for good, right? It's like having a GPS. You can go the wrong way, but they keep saying. <laughs> Recalculating. What I love about our nation is there's Daniels, Esthers, and Josephs, and there's also Davids, and Solomons. I've met many of them. I'm telling you, like, I can't give you their names, but I've met many of them, and I keep hearing, <laughs> recalculating, recalculating. Oh, we're going the wrong way. Recalculating. We're going the wrong way again. Recalculating. Because God has a purpose, even though he doesn't have a plan. <laughs> Are you with me? I want to just read this real, really quickly. Paul wrote to Timothy, First of all, I urge you, entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving, that thanksgiving be made in behalf of all men, especially kings, and all who are in authority, so that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness with dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord God. I'm sorry. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me finish with this one thought. When we pray for leaders. When we pray for leaders, we create the atmosphere so that freedom gets used in a way that benefits the kingdom. When we curse the leaders who are doing evil, we actually close the heavens and relegate them to the second heaven influence. But when we pray for them and we give thanks for them, we open the heavens. And what's the ultimate? Remember, what was the ultimate goal in Isaiah 9? There should be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Timothy picks that up and he goes, if you pray for your leaders, then you'll get to live peacefully and tranquil and the gospel will spread and people will get saved. 
I don't care about government. Oh, you care about salvations? Yes, you care about government then. Because you want the doors of, the, of government to be open to your influence because he who gives the most hope has the most influence. Would you stand, please? Put your hand on your heart. Say, Jesus, help me to be leavened in my city. Help me be the mustard seed in my nation. I pray that a Daniel and Joseph and Esther anointing would be on my lineage to make history his story and turn nations back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that there might be peace on earth and goodwill to men. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Be sure to visit Bethel.tv for other exciting new content from Bethel Church.